0: My name is Brian Lewis. Uh, I'm a member here at Mission Church. I'm thankful for the opportunity to come and uh, present God's Word to us this morning. Um, As you're gathering here this morning, you're probably having quite a amount of baggage in regards to preparation. Um, We're always preparing. God has wired us to be preparers. Uh, Unfortunately, some are better at it than others. Um, Some of us uh, at this point um, your mind is going to begin to wonder um, about all the things that you have to do um, and accomplish, either in your thoughts or things that you forgot to do that you know you need to do after this. Some of you are going to get a text. Some of you are going to get a phone call. Some of you are going to get a, uh, an email. Some of you are going to get some kind of a message today to be preparing for something. So this sermon could be just preparing you for a nap. I don't know, but we will see. Um, But you're sitting here waiting in expectation to be preparing for something you know you need to do. God has designed us to be preparers. It is a good thing that he has designed us to be preparers, and we can live our lives considering that all that we have is to be used for our good and perfect pleasure to make such, to make much of our kingdoms or we can find joy in using all that we have to grow God's kingdom and accomplish His work in this world. So we're called to be preparers in everything that we do, uh, to accomplish God's work in the world. Preparation is a good thing, college students. Not trying to point you out, but I was you one day. But preparation is a good thing. It's something every, it's something every created image bearer is called to do. How well we prepare for something will determine what we love most in this world how we prepare for something will determine what we love most in this world john rockefeller i don't know if you've ever done much of a study on him but he was a man of preparation Uh, He started the largest oil operation known to man, so much that they said, "Mm, you've kind of got this monopolized, we need to break this up a little bit. In 1916, he was the first declared billionaire in modern history. When he died, his accountant was asked this question, how much did Mr. Rockefeller leave? The accountant replied, we left all of it. By the end of his life, Rockefeller had donated over a half a billion dollars of his wealth. But see, what was different about John Rockefeller is that he lived a life that was surrendered to the gospel. He was a deacon in his church. Uh, he faithfully served the Lord. But he had prepared his life to be an offering, and he prepared his life to be an offering because of what he loved most, that being the gospel. So today our text comes from Malachi. Malachi. We will be looking at Malachi 3, but today we'll see what God's people were loving most and how they centered their preparation around getting what they loved. God's people had spent a lifetime preparing for God's blessing, working hard on the outside to show their devotion to God and expect great reward in the end. Through their religious acts and rituals, they were confronted by the prophet Malachi to search their hearts and their motives in their preparation. Their preparation for worship was all about outward appearance and not an inward devotion and zeal for the Lord. They had become ritualistic in their offerings. And those offerings were their leftovers. Malachi was the last prophetic word given to, uh, to God's chosen people before God goes silent for 400 years. This is before he speaks to his people again through the prophet John the Baptist. This is a monumental book in God's word. I don't think we need to get hung up on why he went silent for 400 years, because he went silent a lot. But the children of Jacob were waiting on the consolation of Israel, but assuming it would come in the form of an earthly king, kingly rule. But sadly, they had this expectation of becoming a great people great people who would rule the things around them, but doing it with the expectation of God blessing them in abundance to the preparation of their offerings to God and removal of their suffering. They thought, if we do this plus this, God will do this. But in the final book of the Old Testament, we see God's people being confronted by the prophet Malachi with six disputes from God. Number one, they were questioning God's love for them. They were questioning God's love for them. Number 2, God confronts their unclean, blemished sacrifices they make for their offerings to the priest for atonement. God is confronting their unclean, blemished sacrifices they make for their offerings to the priest for atonement. Number 3, the Lord rebukes the priest for not declaring God's word and letting anything pass as worship. These priests were only serving the people's needs rather than the people's desires. God acknowledges their unfaithfulness to God and to those who have married outside of the people of God and their common practice of divorce. Number five, God confronts them in not being keepers of the law and withholding their tithe from God from their fruits of their labor. And lastly, he confronts by their false beliefs of not being blessed like the evildoers, but but not seeing their worth of serving God. They didn't understand Why are the wealthy and the evildoers being blessed? But here we are serving God and nothing's happening. So in honor of God's word, we're going to stand and read Malachi 3, 1 through 5. So if you'll stand with me as we look at our text this morning. The word of the Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for our time to be together today. We thank you that you have woven it in us to have a longing to want to know how the emptiness within us can be restored. And Lord, we thank you that you have given the key to us through your word that Christ is the atoning sacrifice that we need, that Lord, this season on the, of, of, the celebration of your coming, we can rest assured knowing that it is of value and of worth to the Christian faith because you are alive and you rose from an empty grave. And so, Lord, we celebrate your birth. We come before you now this Sunday morning celebrating that you are alive, that you have risen. So, Lord, protect our hearts, protect our minds from wicked and evil thoughts that could birth in us this morning. Protect me as I preach your word. May it be you that is pronounced not the craftiness of words Lord we love you it is in Christ's name we pray amen you may be seated so in our text the Israelites believed their prepared offerings would and should result in blessings from God but when the blessings didn't come to fruition they felt unloved abandoned and they felt mistreated by God In most regards, their preparations to commune with God were built out of religious acts and not their best offerings. One cannot prepare to meet with God if we were doing it out of hopes to gain from God. This is the way of the heathen, not the way of a disciple of Christ. This is what God's people were doing on the eve of four centuries of silence. They had the Torah. They knew something was going to happen. They had some some, uh, letters of wisdom. They had sources to gain truth and comfort in the promises that one was going to come. But here they are resting in the religious acts on the eve of four centuries of silence. Up until this point... The Israelites are in exile, and assuming if they do all the right things, they'll be blessed by God. They're keeping all the rituals and offerings, sacrifices to God. They're treating the relationship with God as a mathematical equation. God's people were going through the motions and preparing to meet their God. It had turned into a method of hoping in what they would gain, rather than in the glory of God, what the glory of God would gain out of the offerings from God's people. God was and has always been about making his name great among the nations. Verse 3 and 11 in Malachi 1 says this, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But all this time, the Lord is pronouncing his love for his people. Now he is going to redeem more than just the Israelites. God was going to use the seed of the Israelites to redeem a foreign people. And if you want to know who the foreign people are, I don't think we have any Messianic Jews in our congregation, but we are the foreign people. His people are grumbling and questioning God by saying things like, How have you loved us? Why do you choose to bless the wicked sinners while we're doing all this stuff and it seems our lives aren't getting any better? Many of us here, if we are honest with the family of God, have done or are doing the same thing God's people are doing here. I think it's just very subtle though. Rarely do we make sacrifices to God and we quickly accuse God because He has dealt us a bad hand. We think if we do this kind thing for someone and then all of a sudden we are cursed with cancer or whatever it may be, we're like, God, look at all we have done. But here we are on our faces while the rich man continues to gain wealth, not being obedient to you. You and I will prepare for everything else with excellence. I think this is a scary thing. You and I will prepare for everything else with excellence, but when it comes to preparing for personal devotion with the Lord, we score a two at best. When Bethany and I come home from work on the days, uh, or or the days that I come from home uh, from work, and she's on her second job, which is mothering our two children, it is safe to say we are done. Like we're done. Like, we see the finish line, but mentally and physically, we are spent. Now, if one of you are saying, like, "Well, we had five, six kids. Well, look, two's all we know, okay? So don't talk about how bad five and six was, all right? But listen, our kids are excited to have us together. They're going crazy because for some reason, when it gets close to bedtime, our kids get a dose of crazy, like, literally. I think they go in the back room, they shoot themselves up, and it's just nuts, but at this point, is pushing 8 p.m. We're chasing our kids with tranquilizers uh, to put them down for the night. It's a small dose. Uh, we'll get them ready for bed. We'll have family devotion time, which basically means, Colton, sit in bed, please listen, quit going, do this other stuff. And then Riley going through his rituals, having everything just right, lights shut on and off, uh, Door shut. Like, he will literally touch every door to make sure that they're all shut just the way that he wants it. But here's the thing. Why do we so, work so hard to follow this method every night, putting the kids to bed? Because of the prize. <laughs> the prize is what we're after. What's the prize? It's the couch. <laughs> it doesn't have to be much. It just needs to be the couch. And we get the couch being alone in a quiet space, watching our shows, vegging out. While my, Like this week, my wife knitted a sweater for our cat. I don't even know what to do with that. Um, but, that, but it's all about the reward that we get. We work hard for that reward. We celebrate the reward. Last night I was cursed for my reward. I slept the whole night in a twin mattress while my three-year-old like, laid on me with a like, hundred plus temperature, right? So like, I don't know what he was doing, but he's like laying hands on me. Like, I don't know if he was praying to keep me from getting sick, but all I know is my wife found me in his bed last night. So my reward was not very good. But each night, we cherish that time. And cherish the season, college students, because you don't know what we're talking about. But you will. But rest in what you got now, okay? Um, but unfortunately, me and I we're so much like the Israelites in this story. Uh, making cheap sacrifices to God with broken down offerings that are blind crippled and worthless to even eat like what do I mean the preparation I take to spend time alone with God be near to God and have intimacy with God looks nothing like the effort I give to get my kids in bed so we can have the prize of slothfulness it's okay to sit on the couch and rest it's a good thing we need that but man I just see myself focusing so much more on the other things so many times, I think I'm caught seeing my time with the Lord, my preparation to be with the Lord. It's like a chore, a duty, or it's just calculated. If my qualifications to appear was based on the preparation I gave to spending time alone with God, I fail miserably. I fail miserably. Here is the, uh, the most uh, difficult part of all this for you and I. We will prepare best for what we love most. Did you get that? We're going to prepare for what we love most. And if it's not the gospel, how can we prepare the way of the Lord for others? So God's people love themselves most and when things didn't go the way they had calculated, if they, were, uh, if it, it, they were sure to let God be the first to know. If we prepared our hearts for worship and our time alone with God with half the effort we show our workplaces and hobbies, just think how our family would change, our friends would change, our neighborhoods would change, our city would change, and unreached people would change. We must prepare our hearts to not be what John Calvin says about man's nature. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. John Calvin goes on to say it another time. We should ask God to increase our hope when it is small, awaken it when it is dormant, confirm it when it is wavering, strengthen it when it is weak, and raise it up when it is overthrown. But what did God's people do in this text? Man, they accuse God for not being blessed. What do we do in our lives? We accuse God and condemn God. Because when we prepare and things don't go the way that we intended, the first person that we go to look at is our Creator. The Israel's plight was not good, so I can see the temptation on how they would take the things of God, pervert them, take them to be methods to gain a better life. And when that didn't happen, feel sorry for themselves, become angry at God, and condemn Him. But the natural next step in our passage is what does God do to them? How does God draw them in? What should have God done to them, I think, is a real good question. Because what we assume should happen is the opposite of what happens. So let's see. In verse 1 of chapter 3 of Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Where God's people were only thinking about themselves and how to avoid God's judgment, the prophet Malachi pronounces the coming of messengers. It was the redemption of God that his people needed more than anything else. They were just trying to avoid the judgment, but God is saying, I'm bringing redemption. What what God should have done was, you cursed me, you made a mockery of me in your offerings and religious acts, and, and assume I should give you what you think you deserve. You deserve what you have served to yourself. That is a death of eternal separation from me. Church, please hear me. Participating in religious acts is all but a sorry attempt to make an exchange with God. God does not bargain with sinners. He does not look at you and say you have been good enough, you have done enough. He looks at those playing this game of religiosity and calls you what you are, an enemy of God, a heathen. Two lines were produced after the fall of Adam and Eve. The chosen... And the heathen. Though these Israelites were chosen, they were living as an enemy of God. And God, being rich in mercy, did not take their lives. Rather, he tells them about a promise. A promise. Jesus, God made a promise in the beginning. And he's keeping his promise until the end. Malachi, messenger of God, tells them about a messenger that was coming. It's John the Baptist. This messenger would be like no other because he would usher in the messenger of the covenant. John the Baptist would be the one to prepare God's people to receive the Christ. He was called to prepare the way of the Lord. All, th- all of the gospels you hear John the Baptist being talked about all through this text and all through the Old Testament. God's people are throwing gasoline to the fire when they curse God with perverted Preparations, but the gasoline they are throwing onto the fire is for their own judgment. But God pronounces this, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Lord of hosts. God pronounces the sending of a rescue. I've been praying. You for this since the beginning of time. I've been preparing you for this since the beginning of time. I've been preparing to rescue you for myself. What we deserve is to be poured out on for us all is is God's wrath. We deserve is what we deserve is God's wrath to be poured out on us for all the times we have made a mockery out of God in our weak preparations to be intimate with Him. But listen to this great news God pronounces through Malachi. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. You have strategically perverted the sacrifice and selfishly sought gain for yourselves. I know you are helpless. I know you need a rescue, and I know how this turns out if I don't step in with my rescue. I am redeeming a people for myself. Ah, if God wanted to unleash his judgment rather than the plan of redemption, then there would be no reason to be at this point in human history. He would have already done it. Instead, he has prepared the rescue we need because he knows we cannot endure the coming judgment. You and I cannot endure it. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He does not stop here, though at verse 1. A very alarming word is given. Who can endure? In all your strategic preparations and planning, in all of your acts of idolatry towards me, nothing can prepare you to endure His coming. If you don't know your state before God, let me tell you. You and I are nothing but worthless beggars trying to find where the bread is at. We cannot endure what we truly deserve from God. God is announcing in this prophecy, if I have asked you to be prepared for my coming, but all you have done is pervert our relationship and sought to gain for your own reward, how can one be ready? How can one survive if you have perverted this relationship? What do I mean? In all of our attempts... To mask our true nature, we are condemned already. One of those epic passages in Scripture says in John 3, 16 through 18, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to into the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Verse 18 Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You can do nothing at the end of your life. You can stand before God and show Him your bags of tricks called religious acts, and they will do nothing for you. Your preparations to try and look good enough for God will only heap judgment upon you more. But God promises, I'm going to send you relief, I'm going to send you a rescue, I'm going to make your past straight, I'm going to save you from your perversion of narcissism, arrogance, and self centeredness. You are not worthy of being saved, but I'm going to make you my beloved. If you're sitting here and, and have heard this truth, but continue to reject the truth and continue to reject the truth, you will not be condemned, but you you will not be condemned because you already are condemned. That's the scary thing. You already stand condemned if you're not believing in this truth, but there is hope for you. There is hope for you, religious man, preparing to put all things perfectly together, to try to make mask God, to, to mask God and others from the true nature of your heart. There is hope for you this morning. These Israelites, deceived by their religious acts, are consumed with the belief they must prepare themselves in a way to be refined, to become acceptable to God. But what is the Lord saying? How will you be able to present yourself to the Lord when all you have done is heat burning coals onto the fire of your judgment? How will you be acceptable enough? How will you be able to endure? How will you be able to stand? You won't be. Remember, you were born condemned. An enemy of God. Verses two and three of Malachi three. For he, being Jesus, who so he's talking about here, he is is like a refiner's, fi- refiner's fire and like fuller soap. People sit as a refiner and purifier, purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. How can you and I withstand the refiner's fire? The refiner's fire purifies us because it burned Jesus. The launderer's soap washes us clean because it's a painful sting, was carried by Christ. The Israelites cannot receive Christ in the temple until they can receive his hope in their hearts. You cannot receive Christ in your hearts until you see Jesus born your cross. He took on the sting of your death for you. How can we stand the refiner's fire? We can't. But you and I cannot withstand the quenching power of the fire. We need someone who can. Christ is the one. He is the one. He is the only one who can withstand the fire of God's refinement on us. Without Christ going through the fire first and atoning for our sins, we cannot have confidence. We can make it through the fire of God's judgment. So in these last few weeks, a fire has swept through uh, the Great Smoky Mountains. And if you know, uh, if you don't know, the Great Smoky Mountains is the number one visited national park in the country. But as hundreds of acres are going up in flames, it approached Gatlinburg. Now, Gatlinburg is very near and dear to my heart. Um, just like every other child in the South who grew up on go-karts, the alpine slide in Dollywood, Right. Uh Gatlinburg is the family version of Vegas in my book. I call Gatlinburg Redneck Vegas, right? Being from Tennessee, I grew up going there as my family and I have an uncle and cousin that live in and around Pigeon Forge, so I was glued to Twitter a few nights ago literally couldn 't find anything on television about it, but late into the night, Bethany wakes up and she goes, "What are you doing? I said, "I am just watching this news report it's going on in Gatlinburg, it's literally on fire. I was shocked. Before the fires had hit the town of Gatlinburg, fire was all the way around it. The temperature rose to over 120 degrees. There was one common theme heard from the victims of the fire. We had no warning. We were listening. We just never heard anything. Finally, we saw the fires coming over the ridge and we just knew we had to get out. As of this morning, over 120 homes and businesses were charred to the ground and 10 people had lost their lives. You can prepare yourself all you want to look as good as you can for God and package your life in a way that shows others you have it all together, but the fire is still coming. It's still going to come. God's judgment is coming. John three nineteen through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest, he works, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As you prepare your strategic religious acts to God, you are only... Making the fire hotter. Believer, you sitting here, rest in the person and work of Christ. Rest in the person and work of Christ. You have the greatest hope, but also the greatest temptation. To act like these religious rather than the rest in the person and work of Christ. I remember when I became a believer, it was like almost instantaneous. Like I just became judgmental. I don't know if that you experienced that, but I was having a conversation with a co-worker the other day and I was like, man, when I became a believer, like, like for a minute, and then like, I just became a nitpicky judger of everyone around me. It's because I fell into that temptation. Rather than resting in the person and work of Christ, God is showing us in verse 2 and 3 that God is and wants to be the refiner of your life and also the only way you can be saved. He will refine us like silver. Silver. Listen to this, in our preparation for the coming of Christ, this time reminds us how Christ wants to continue to refine us. The process of, refine, of refinement is a process that is very subtle, and it's very, very careful work. The Lord is diligent and He is vigilant in this refining process of the chosen. A couple of reasons why God wants to refine you and I. He wants the flame of his spirit to burn bright in you so you can respond to his word and be obedient and faithful to it until the end of your life. Secondly, he uses the flame to draw us to conviction over our sin. A blacksmith will take silver and he's going to melt it down. He's going to melt it down, but as he's doing it, he has to remove the defects, which is called dross. This dross doesn't liquefy and it has to be removed. It literally flakes off. So as the blacksmith is holding a flaming torch uh, that carries 13 to 1400 degrees of heat on the silver, he's having to move away the imperfection, the dross. Once those imperfections are taken out, the silver can be used and molded into the image the blacksmith is most satisfied and pleased with. But how does the blacksmith know the silver is pure? How can he see his image in it? He sees it because it is pure. It is pure. Do you know when God knows you're growing in grace and mercy? This is incredible because as He refines you, you look more and more like the image you were designed to bear. You're looking more and more like Christ. This does not happen through the strategic preparations of religion. This comes through you being chosen and your life being hidden in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. As the silver is dependent on the blacksmith, so are we. So are we dependent on God to save us. A person these are either covered and clothed with Christ that allows us to be refined or we are a dull metal that will just be burned up and blown away. But if we are in Christ, He he will refine us and daily remove the imperfections from us through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. We will know what a person is. We will not know what a person is. But God does. Because He is the refiner. In our last two verses, 4 and 5, Malachi continues to profess, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts in their preparation to be seen right in God's eyes through their religious rituals, they have not offered anything pleasing to God or offered it out of a pure heart. This hope Malachi pronounces is the true and better and pleasing offering to the Lord, one that no chosen man can make to appease God's judgment and anger towards our sin. Christ Jesus our Lord is that offering, that it's what gives us great anticipation now and forevermore. You and I need to prepare for the coming of the Lord. To be prepared and to prepare, we need Christ. To be prepared, we must have Christ's covering. Without Christ's substitutionary atoning death, we have no covering. We cannot be prepared for the return of our Lord. If He was dead and still in the grave, we have no hope this morning. If the people were listening to Malachi, verse 4 would have been the most comforting of them all. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem would be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. He is pronouncing, Malachi is pronouncing, God is pronouncing the promise that the one offering of Christ will be sufficient to cover all of Jerusalem and Judah's sin. As the Israelites were angry and questioning God for not having the life they felt like they deserved, they are hit with this. What you and I deserve is death, but what Christ gives is life. Abundant life. You see, you and I don't want what we truly deserve. We don't. What Christ comes to fulfill is a plan of redemption before the final judgment comes. Over 2,500 years later, since the book of Malachi, we're still waiting on that final judgment to come. This is good news. This is tremendous news. Though a judgment is still coming, listen to Jesus' pronouncement Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then announced that this this remarkable, um, remarkable thing has been fulfilled in himself. He is the fulfiller of this prophecy. But what is remarkable about what Jesus read is what he didn't read. He didn't read the rest of Isaiah 61-2 to complete the sentence. And the day of vengeance of our Lord, judgment is going to come. But God has chosen to redeem us first. He has chosen to redeem us first. Even when you read the book of Malachi, he's literally telling them, you are a chosen people. I am going to save you. But let's talk about how this is going to happen. God is still patiently working out his plan of redemption for us and through us. We are called to now partake in this preparation of seeing a foreign people have the opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel. I don't know if you're interested in the Soviet Union, but as I close, hear this story and listen about this man's life. One of the inmates in the notorious Russian prisons was a Jewish doctor by the name of Boris Nikolaevich Kornfeld. He was a political prisoner of the Stalinist era, but he was treated better than most simply because doctors were scarce. Guards got sick as well as prisoners and no prison officer wanted to end up in the hands of a prisoner he had cruelly abused. Boris Cornfell was filled with hate. He considered himself innocent of all crime and he was, by our standards, he was. But he would gladly have killed all his persecutors if a path had been open to him. There was a Christian in the camp. He was another one of those nameless persons who perished by the millions in those days. But he spoke to Cornfeld, and through his witness, this Jewish atheistic doctor became a believer in Jesus. The most extraordinary changes followed. This, the conversion was itself astonishing, but Cornfell now began to live the faith he professed. He began to pray for the guards above all for forgiveness for himself for the hatred he had once had for them. He stopped signing forms that permitted the guards to confine those they disliked. "...to dark tortured cells, and where most died, even more significant, he turned in an orderly who had been stealing food from the most seriously ill patients. It was the equivalent of signing his own death warrant. For although the orderly was placed in a punishment block for three days, he was inevitably released and could be expected to try to kill at this first at the first opportunity." The doctor took to sleeping in the hospital where he had his best chance of survival. Still having accepted the possibility, even the probability of death, Kornfeld now experienced freedom to live as God's man. Hatred vanished from his life. He did what he could for the prisoners. One night, Kornfeld began to tell a patient what had happened to him. This man had been operated on for cancer of the intestines and probably had little time to live. As the doctor talked, the patient kept drifting in and out of consciousness. He was an unlikely person to hear the Jews' testimony. But Boris Kornfeld spoke of Jesus as his Savior and confided, On the whole, you know, I have become convinced that there is no punishment that comes to us in this life on earth which is undeserved. Superficially, it can have nothing to do with what we are guilty of in actual fact. But if you go over your life with a fine tooth and comb and ponder it deeply, you will always be able to hunt down that transgression of yours for which you have now received this blow. It was a remarkable confession. And it touched the patient deeply in spite of his pain and wrecked condition. See, the people of Malachi's day who considered God unjust and themselves innocent lacked that remarkable spirit of humility, And repentance. The patient awoke the next morning to the sound of running feet. The commotion concerned his newfound friend, um, the doctor. During the night, while Boris Kornfeld slept, someone had crept up on him and shattered his school with eight blows of a plaster's mallet. It was the end of Boris Nikolaevich Kornfeld, yet not the end. Because Kornfeld's testimony lived on through the life and witness of that one single cancer patient with whom he had shared shared it. The patient's name was Alexander Zolstinitz, I believe that's how you say it, later professing Christ. This message that he heard changed him forever. Before Solsenitz was imprisoned prison in a labor camp where he met Kornfeld, he was serving as a commander in the Red Army. After his release from the labor camp, he spent his time as an author and poet. His most influential writing was the Gulag, condemning work of the Soviet government that was called by George Kennan, an influential U.S. diplomat, the most powerful single indictment of a political regime ever to be leveled in modern times. The Gulag traces the history of the system of forced labor camps that existed in the Soviet Union from 1918 to 1956, Since the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the formation of the Russian Federation, the Gulag has been officially published and has been included in the high school program in Russia as a mandatory reading since 2009. Kornfeld was prepared to preach the gospel. He was prepared to preach the gospel the day before he would be killed for it. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to preach the gospel? Are you prepared for the day that will come for your judgment? We can go through the season. We can celebrate the birth of Jesus. But if it is just ritualistic, stop. Stop. Surrender your life to Jesus as Cornfeld did. And though his death loomed, he knew his death was no more because his life was hidden in Christ. We cannot prepare the way of the Lord for others until we have allowed God to prepare us. Christ is going to return. And the judgment that is talked about all through scripture is going to come. But I pray that we will be a church that will live like Cornfeld, that will surrender our life to the gospel for the sake of those that we may never have a relationship but heard the gospel and were saved. May we be like that unnamed man that preached the gospel to Cornfeld. But most importantly, may we be those who go forth calling all to saving faith in Christ so they may be prepared for the day of the Lord. Let's pray.